Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Runners Connect, Running to the Top podcast. I'm your new host, Lucas Felton. As those of you who have followed us for a while are aware, we haven't published an episode now for several months. There are a bunch of reasons for that, but as your new host, I'm here to make sure that we have a new episode every Wednesday for the next weeks and months. We have some awesome new interviews and guests lined up, and I'm looking forward to sharing them all with you. We also have a new feature where we'll take your questions and we'll answer them on a monthly basis. I'll get to how to leave us those questions at the end of the episode. Before I get started, I'd just like to give you a little bit of background on me. I was a fairly average runner in high school and college, and unfortunately had a bunch of injuries toward the end of my college career. These injuries caused me to become very interested in different training methods and equipment, as well as helping others make better decisions about their training than I did. Today's episode, we're talking about shoes. Most people, myself included, go into a running store and it's like we're kids in a candy store. The difference is that most of us have read a lot of the reviews in magazines and go into the store with questions like, would that shoe work for me? What's the difference between this shoe and that shoe? Should I try a more minimal shoe? Should I try racing in flats? And the list goes on. So, in this episode, we invited Garth Merrill, the owner of Fleet Feet Sports Coeur d'Alene in northern Idaho, to help answer some of those questions. Garth and I talked about different categories of shoes, the process of getting fit for shoes, and we also delve into minimal shoes and their uses, benefits, drawbacks, and impact on footwear in general. Garth and I had a great discussion. I think there's a lot of good information in it. If you want to see any of the resources we discussed, you can find them at runnersconnect.net rc37. One final note, this is my first interview, so please bear with me. I'd also love to hear any feedback you have on how you think I can improve. Thanks for listening, and without further ado, let's get started. Garth, tell us a bit about yourself, kind of where you're from, and a bit about your running history. Uh, well, I'm the owner of Fleet Feet Sports with my wife uh, up here in Coeur d'Alene. Uh, we've had the store for about 10 years, been in the business for about 15. Been running since the early 70s, so that's 40-plus years I've had fun with all kinds of running shoes and all kinds of running. Very nice. So, uh, what was your first race? My first race was actually a uh, cross-country meet at a Scottish Highlands Games when uh, my family was traveling in Europe when I was about six and a half or seven years old. That's really, really cool. I that That's not a very common answer when you ask what people's first race was. Yeah, I uh, I like it as part of my running pedigree. So, how did you start working in running stores? Uh, it was kind of a midlife career change, I guess. It's something I'd always wanted to do. It was one of my uh, various plan A's as a career, and after I did another plan A, I switched to this plan A, and eventually wound up up here in Coeur d'Alene with the store. Very nice. Are there any uh, specific takeaways you've had from different stores you worked at or bosses you've had? Yeah, you know, uh, I've always tried to learn something uh, along the way from, from all of my mentors. So at each stop, I've learned things. The, the most consistent thing has been um, provide good customer service and, and be honest about what you do, and you'll get good results. Sounds like a good way to live. 
tell us a bit about about shoes. How are they kind of generally classified? Well, the classic uh, kind of three-tier classification for running shoes is uh, what they call neutral support, uh, stability shoes, and motion control shoes, which uh, are three pretty broad categories within which there, there are a lot of shades of gray. Um, but that, that paradigm has shifted a bit over the last few years as more innovative shoe designs come out and more studies come out uh, showing what kind of effect those shoes actually have on a runner and their health and their performance. Talk about a couple of those shades of gray. Well, just within the stability category of shoes, for example, in which traditionally about 75% of all runners uh, fall, that is the shoe designed for uh, moderate overpronators, uh, and pronating is the body's mechanism for absorbing shock. It's the flexibility of the arch, and many folks uh, have more flexible arches than are ideal, so they do more than absorb shock. They kind of slam them down into the ground at plenty angles. So traditionally, they've uh, blocked off the medial or inside of the midsole of a lot of running shoes with a denser or firmer material so that people won't collapse down that sidewall of the shoe and they'll stay in proper alignment. That's uh, changed a lot over the years as they've played with the different densities of foam that they can do there or other ways to provide stability in shoes that lessens the importance of that particular feature. What are some of those other ways? Because that sounds like a pretty straightforward process. Yeah, well, so instead of building up that medial sidewall of the shoe, now you're seeing um, a lot of shoe designs with a lower drop, so the lower profile um, is inherently a little more stable than raising the foot up on a, on a higher platform. Um, fuller ground contact with the outer sole of the shoe, which is another stabilizing feature. And then uh, even something as subtle as the placement of the flex grooves or uh the lines on the bottoms of the shoes and the uh, placement of the outer sole materials, even the different kinds of rubbers, can have a lot to do with how the foot is kind of guided through its gait instead of just kind of blocking it from one movement to another like some of the more traditional midsoles uh, could do. That's kind of interesting. So when you started running, what were shoes like? We've all heard about the the sandal-like racing flat shoes that all the guys in the 70s wore is that kind of how you what the kind of shoes you started in yeah i came along at a really interesting time uh in running shoe development my first pair of shoes were kind of the classic uh low profile almost nothing there running shoes that that today would be called a retro style um i think my very second pair of running shoes was the nike ltv which was um one of the first honking uh, midsole shoes. It, it was sort of like a wedge. It was kind of like driving a Jeep. You could drive over all kinds of things with it. It was kind of heavy and clunky, but it was really well cushioned and a very stable shoe for the time. And so can you talk a little bit about how that's pr- how that progressed since you started running those, in that one of those first early efforts at a, st- at a stability shoe? Yeah. Um, since that time, um, they started experimenting with... Uh, what they call a varus wedge, which is just a uh, basically a wedge in the midsole, which was another way to kind of block that area um, for support. Then they started adding the 
denser midsole foams in there, um, all the while kind of building up the shoes. You could almost see a, a, a wave where they they went from light and flexible and got more stable and more built up and heavier um, over the years to where the pendulum has sort of started swinging the other way. Uh, we went all the way down to minimalism and barefoot with all the, the five-finger stuff and, and the zero-drop shoes, and that influence has kind of created somewhere in the middle a uh, kind of a nice plat running platform for folks, a, a not-too-high, not-too-low, pretty stable, well-cushioned, not-too-heavy running shoe design. That's kind of interesting. That's uh, definitely something people talk about was shoes back in the day and how nobody ever had a lot of injury problems, and I have my own thoughts on that. So when somebody comes into your store saying, I'm a new runner, I need a pair of shoes, what do, what do, you, what do you do then? Well, first we discuss with them what their running goals are and um, what their, their health history is and what their, their ch challenges will be as they go forward on, on their running life. Um, some people come with great health and great biomechanics and don't need to... Uh, go through as much of a learning curve or rely as much on um, the extra features that you might find in a shoe that we might specially fit for. So so we do that through through an interview and um, gait analysis and things like that, like a lot of running stores do. Um, but really we're looking at their, their mechanics and, and how they move and cycle through their gait so that we can uh, kind of address that with the shoes. So... Describe the gait analysis a little more. Right. Well, traditionally, when you're looking at somebody's gait, you'd be looking for um, specifically how much they pronate was, was the main thing, and then the effects that that had on the rest of their body. So if we're looking at their arches, whether they're running or walking, we're looking for how much really the middle of that arch uh, collapses down towards the ground and how much it snaps back up as they cycle through their gait. Um it used to be when you would see a lot of arch movement that you'd go right to a pretty stable uh, motion-controlling shoe. Uh, these days that changes a little bit as uh, the shoe designs that we talked about um, have other ways of stabilizing. So you're never quite sure until you see them in the shoe um, if something a little lighter or uh, more flexible might indeed work for them. And what do people generally need to look for in the size of their shoes? Because you hear all kinds of things. You want them tight. You want them looser. Go into that a bit. Yeah. Uh, we get that a lot at running stores. Uh, people come in and insist they're a size 8 and everything. And, um, of course, that's impossible. All, all shoe styles have different sizing matrices. Um, running shoes are no different. Compared to, say, a dress shoe or a lot of traditional shoes, they typically run about half a size to even a size and a half smaller. So so we usually end up sizing people up in their shoes. It's a hard thing for people to wrap their head around. Uh, the shoe's not any bigger than their other shoes. It's just the number on the box. You know, it still fits their foot the same. But a lot of people have trouble with that moving up in size. Why do you think that is? Not not people having trouble with it, but why, why, are the, why do you think that the numbers are always different? Um... Uh, just different shoe designs, you know, uh, a dress shoe or a boot is going to 
have a real different shape to it and made for different uses than a running shoe or a walking shoe, which has got to be designed to um, expand as the foot expands. It's going to be worn for some pretty intense activity, and um, it's going to have other features like a more anatomical design, I guess. So, um, so they have to allow for that in the in the sizing. You just mentioned something that uh, is a bit of a bone of contention, I'm sure, with people. Uh, running shoe versus walking shoe. Go into that a bit. Yeah. Well, traditionally, uh, walking shoes tend to be um, more a cosmetic design than anything else. Um, as far as running shoes and walking shoes go, the support needs are basically the same. You need a uh, good support for your running shoe, you probably need it in your walking shoe as well. So, um, often the, the walking designs are leather uppers, uh, maybe traditional white or black. Um, some are built uh, with good technology for, um, like the running shoes, but, but the walking category can be kind of a catch-all for, frankly, a lot of not really great shoes. Oh, that's good to know. So, what what kind of things would throw off a quote unquote normal fit? I'm, I doubt there even really is that, such a thing. Yeah, anytime you think there's a normal fit, um, somebody comes along and proves you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, it could be size differences in in somebody's feet. We all have a a little bit of a size difference between right and left feet. Some people have a really dramatic size difference, and that can be a challenge if it's a full size. Um, it's it's too big on one foot and too small on the other, and generally you want to size to the bigger foot, so you got to find ways to make it fit on the smaller foot. Um, some people have really different mechanics on each side of their body, so one arch may require a lot more support, and and the other may not. And sometimes you have to find a happy medium for that person and, and what works best for them. Why do you, why might somebody's mechanics be different on different sides of their body? What do you think about that? can be all kinds of reasons. It, it could be the way you're born. Um, it could be a leg length discrepancy. It could be uh, the flexibility of your body on one side versus the other. Um, there could be environmental conditions that affect that as well. Um, you know, if you're right side dominant or left side dominant and... Um, and really favor that side, then it's going to be maybe a little more developed and uh, have its own issues that, that the other side of the body may not. Injury history can have a lot to do with that, too. We've seen folks that have had uh, broken ankles or broken feet or broken legs that have affect their gait on, on that one side. So all those kinds of things. That's interesting. One thing that I'm sure you hear a lot of is uh, people talk about how high their arches or how flat their, their feet are. And that's something that everybody's heard about. There are, you know, countless guys who were drafted and were let out of the draft because they have flat feet. Go into that a bit. Well, uh, traditionally, uh, high arches and flat feet are kind of two ways of saying um, really neutral support and needs a lot of support. Um, but when you see enough feet you start to realize that high arches can be really flexible and collapse uh, and turn into flat feet and likewise uh, flat feet or low arches can be really stable and may not uh, pronate as much as, as you might guess by looking at them just because the feet are down on the ground so um, 
just because somebody has eye arches doesn't mean they don't need a shoe that has good support or perhaps an insole that provides that support. And just because they have flat feet or low arches doesn't necessarily mean that they need a motion control or stabilizing shoe. They may be just fine and stable with their flat feet. That's, I'm sure, very, that'll be very refreshing for, a lot, for many people out there to know that you don't necessarily need a uh, quote-unquote orthopedic-looking shoe. Yeah, and these days, even uh, the traditional orthopedic shoes are getting pretty good makeovers and, and being made more and more runnable and more running shoe-looking. So speaking of that, if somebody, for example, knows that I, uh, I have a pretty stable, stiff arch that doesn't move much, if I go into a store that I don't know, what, um, what do I need to look for in a shoe? What, what, what kind of characteristics would set, it, set different categories of shoes apart? Visually, if you're uh, self-shopping and, and somewhere where you, you can't get good help, like a running specialty store in your neighborhood, which of course you should be patronizing at every opportunity. Absolutely. Um, but if you can't and you have a high stable arch, or let's just say a stable arch, it doesn't even have to be high. Um, you're going to go looking for uh, shoes that have um, a certain amount of flexibility and cushion, perhaps. Um, as opposed to a stabilizing shoe, which will have materials you don't need. doesn't necessarily mean you can't run in them, but you don't need. And the um, best way to identify those are to flip the shoe around to the medial side and look at the sidewall of that shoe and see if it's blocked off with a denser midsole foam to correct that pronating foot. Usually that's gray. Sometimes these days it's it's spackled or some other color, but it's usually a little wedge around the arch area of denser foam. And for a stable foot, you won't need that. Um, you can get away with something that is more flexible and doesn't have that extra material. Okay. So something else you just mentioned a few couple minutes ago was uh, an insole. What are some other ways a person can help make a shoe fit? You can help shoes fit with uh, different weights of socks. Um, that's a, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> right. And uh, if you have enough shoes in your arsenal, you, you probably have uh, various weights of socks to go with them, also depending on what kind of running you're doing that day. Um, we also use uh, various insoles to help shoes fit. Anything from a flat insole that you can get... Um, packaged or an old insole from one of your old running shoes to just take up a little extra volume in the bottom of the shoe. Um, we also use uh, different over-the-counter uh, orthotic type devices to help fit the shape of the foot to the to the shoe. Interesting. So let's shift gears a little bit. What are some, uh, some common misconceptions that a lot of people have about their running shoes? Hmm... I'm sure they well, can go into a one, dissertation about this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I guess one is that um, they can't be worn out because uh, they haven't run that much in them when they've used them for everything else in their life. So uh, a running shoe has a, a finite life, and um, it doesn't know the difference between a walking mile, a running mile, or a, a mile at the mall. And people often come in and tell us, you know, well... I, I only run 20 miles a week. They shouldn't be done in, uh, you know, three months. And, and it turns out they're doing, you know, 
eight exercise classes a day in them, a week in them as well, and, uh, you know, so that would be one, just the, the durability of running shoes, they, they don't last as long as some people might expect them to. So, one of the things that's really, uh, it's really kind of taken over the market, as you were saying, of, of running shoes is, is the minimalism deal. So, tell us a bit about minimalism and how those, how that works in shoes. Well, minimalism is sort of a, uh, a return back to the old days uh, in many ways. Um, we talked about the, the first running shoes that I used back in the day and how they kind of changed since then. Um, minimalism kind of goes back to those first shoes. Uh, it takes away most of the cushion and support features and um, a lot of the unnecessary extras, uh, minimalists would say, that that have evolved in running shoes over the years and gets you back closer to the ground. You see that in all kinds of shoe designs from the very popular five-finger uh, type shoes to um, various other really minimal, low-to-the-ground, feel-the-earth kind of shoes. Why might somebody want to do that, want to wear something like that? I think there are a couple primary reasons. Uh, one is just the visceral pleasure of being closer to the ground and really feeling your running surface and being in contact with it. And for a lot of people, that's a, a huge thing. It's it's why they run, is to have that connection, and that just brings them closer. Uh, another reason is um, people feel like it, it leads them to a more natural running style, which uh, for those people often translates to better performance. And there's something to that. How do you, how do you mean? Well... The uh, minimalist shoes kind of dictate that you run in a more careful way, uh, more considerate of each step. And uh, in the long run, that can really only help you uh, be a better runner. It may not necessarily make you faster, although it, it might. <laughs> but, sure. um, but to pay more attention to each step, uh, even if only for a couple times a week when you're using those shoes, um, can help you in the long run just be a, a better, more careful runner. So is this something that anybody could benefit from, or are there others who could, are there some who could benefit more from it? Go into that a bit. There are, uh, probably everybody could benefit from it. Um, some people can benefit from it by doing it a very little bit, and some people can benefit from it by, uh, doing more, um, you know, some of us just don't have the musculoskeletal system to handle a high volume without any cushion padding or support, um, at least not without a very long build-up and adjustment period, which in our experience, a lot of runners don't have the personality to um, go through that. Yeah, we are a rather obsessive-compulsive bunch. Yeah, um, the, the thing with the minimalism shoes is they... they they can feel really good, and they can be really fun, and it's easy to get carried away with them for a week or three. And then before you know it, you're looking at a stress fracture or some kind of overuse injury or a, a metatarsal bruise or something like that, um, and it takes you out of commission for a while. And then you have to start up, start your low caref slow, careful build-up anyway. Right. So there's story upon story out there of people who were using the most stable blocky motion control shoes they could find and have and then ended up in 
then ended up trying this uh, these minimalism shoes, and all of a sudden, you know, can run forever. The case in point being the Born to Run book classic by Christopher McDougall, who was one of those people. Talk about that phenomena a bit. Yeah, we, we hear that a lot too, and, and um, a lot of those stories we hear are from folks that were in those uh, most heavy-duty, motion-controlling kind of shoes um, because they were chronically injured, and that was seen as the best way to prevent those injuries. And, and in many cases, that might have been right before those people were forced to stop doing anything. A lot of the uh, cases you hear of people having that success switching over to those more minimal shoes from the motion control type shoes are people who are forced to start back at zero, just like we were just talking about, um, because they just couldn't run anymore. So, yeah, as a last resort, they picked up this, you know, barefoot kind of shoe and went out and ran half a mile one day and were great grateful for that because they couldn't run before and the next day they did another half a mile and you know over whatever period of time it took them to adjust their bodies to that um i think it allowed them to uh it was a slow enough build-up that allowed them to heal and recover as well so so you truly are talking about about zero zero like two three miles a week it sounds like yeah you know um on one of the company's uh, shoe boxes, they used to have a recommendation that came with one of their minimal styles that only uh, like 10% of your overall weekly volume should be done in that shoe. And even that is probably an overestimate for a lot of people that are just making that transition. And all you have to do is go out to a field when the weather's nice and take off your shoes and, and run around barefoot a little bit. and experience the soreness the next day to get an idea of of what we're talking about and imagine doing that on a harder surface and getting carried away for a couple of weeks and getting yourself into some trouble so yeah um it's a very uh gradual build-up for most folks and something they have to be careful with so i would imagine there's been a decent amount of folks who've come into your store looking for shoes like this if you, assuming that they understand that what they may have to, uh, how much they may have to cut back their running, what do you have to consider when fitting a shoe like this? Um, the most important thing, if if they understand all that, is that it fits their foot well. Frankly, um, we're taking a lot of the uh, support and cushion elements out of it that we we look at when we do a traditional fit, and we're more talking about uh, what their comfort level is. So it's got to fit their foot right. And if they've never played with these kinds of shoes before, um, maybe take them through uh, the different levels of minimalist there are so that they can see where they're, they're happy. Somebody may come in wanting a barefoot experience because all their friends tell them how great it is, but they may discover that their own personal comfort zone is something with a little more shoe there. So how have these kinds of shoes impacted the market you you mentioned it before that it had happened can you go be a little more specific yeah i think for a couple years there um ending probably last year and a half or so um the minimalist shoes went from barely a blip on the radar to something like 10 or 15 percent of the market um that's impressive yeah and what was interesting was they weren't all being bought by uh traditional runners either it brought a lot of new people into to running i think who wanted 
again, that kind of visceral experience, not people looking for a improved running stride or anything like that necessarily, but just people that wanted to get out there close to the earth or whatever they were running on um, in these fun shoes. Almost, um, almost like a Zen experience. I think for a lot of people, yeah. The uh, the sales in, in that category have dropped off quite a bit, and, and some of the enthusiasm for it has waned a little bit, but the hardcore folks are still at it, and the influences on shoe design have definitely still carrying forward. So things like... You mentioned the word drop earlier. Can you just explain to those who don't, who haven't heard this term what that means? Yeah, the drop of a running shoe is the difference from the uh, height of the heel to the height of the forefoot, where your, where your toes are. And um, Traditionally, that's been in the uh, 10 to 12 millimeter area, um, heel to toe, and the barefoot, obviously, is a zero drop uh, foot or shoe um in a lot of your kind of semi-minimalist shoes you'll see somewhere in that four to, to eight millimeter drop which is a pretty nice area for for shoes to be because it makes them accessible for a lot of folks and i did a little research on this before but uh just tell everybody out there what a uh what, what does that look like physically what what, are, what is what does four or eight millimeters look like Four millimeters is a is a couple of nickels stacked on top of each other. I mean, it's really not that much, and, and eight millimeters is is just a little more, you know. And um, so it's really not much, and it's it's crazy what a difference that can have um, on your running experience. Yeah, I've tried some some uh, some semi minimalist shoes, and it's it is when you think when and then you do that comparison, and it's it's it is crazy indeed what a what a, a little difference in actual physical height it is and how different it really feels. It's also a great lesson in the tolerances that your body has for really little adjustments like that. Um, you know, a lot of people can get pretty jacked up in their Achilles tendons and their calf muscles when they make that switch. And again, you're only talking about the difference of a few nickels stacked on top of each other and it can be uh, it can be a world of hurt if uh, you're not careful with with that adjustment it almost goes back to the old Bill Bowerman things where he was trying to save like one ounce on a shoe and added it up over a mile for one of his runners and netted up to something like 55 pounds of weight I imagine it, the, the same math could be applied with f four extra millimeters, say, of stretch in the Achilles tendon over, what is it, 160 to 180 steps a mile times however many miles you're running. Yeah, and that's something to consider when you're looking at those shoes. Um, and, and it goes hand-in-hand hand with the fact that the more minimal shoe, the more the impact forces are going to be absorbed uh, below the knee as opposed to the quads and the hips and the lower back taking it in more traditional shoes this is uh so i'm sure there's been a lot of stories of you know my uh say my knee problem went away but i got a stress fracture in my foot yeah you hear that a lot uh cured my shin splints but hips feel better but um yeah and and that's attributable to either folks not making the transition uh carefully or perhaps just um, 
making the transition successfully, but then enjoying their running so much that they got injured another way, <laughs> which we're prone to do. Yes, again, we are a fairly obsessive-compulsive bunch who like to push the envelope. A couple more questions because I don't want to keep you too too long here. Um, what what are some what are some reasons like like this is a hard question to answer, but other than kind of feeling the experience and and and, and it feeling good and liking it, why might somebody want to switch to a more minimal type shoe? Just chronic well, injuries a, or um, yeah, I'd uh, say injuries and performance would be the other reasons, and we touched a little bit on the health impacts, um, what studies seem to find are that the more minimal running shoes transfer impact forces uh, from the knee on down. So your calf muscles, your shins, your ankles, your uh, feet start absorbing more of that shock as nature pretty much intended it to, um, but, but as the body may not be used to doing. Uh, whereas more traditional shoes... Um, the impact forces tend to be absorbed higher up in the body. So making that switch, um, especially for folks, as we talked about, with maybe chronic hip issues or um, knee problems or hamstring issues, sometimes they make that switch to the more minimal shoe and the impact forces that were causing those problems or contributing to them uh, have gone away. They're, they're down lower now, and if they make the switch with success, then those problems can go away. And this is mostly connected with the uh, the the, uh, the the foot strike, the the midfoot to forefoot strike. People call it. Yeah, and that would that would lead to the other reason that people change is um, the idea that it, it could help their performance, and a lot of that has to do with a focus on their foot strike, um, correctly or incorrectly. The, the foot strike. Um, it's not the be-all and end-all of our running performance, obviously, but it's where a lot of people seem to focus, and for good reason, because when you make that switch to a minimal shoe, the uh, the foot kind of has to land um, pretty carefully, so we tend not to heel strike as much. We tend to land a little more mid-foot to forefoot, and a lot of people will view that as a performance improvement, because when we watch fast runners, we notice that most of them are running on their midfoot where the ball's in their feet. And the benefits to that, is it just physically more efficient, or is there is it a feeling thing? Why would that be a better way to go? Well, honestly, that's open to a, a whole lot of debate and a big can of worms, and for every... Uh, Every four-foot striking uh, world record holder um, you point to, somebody else will point to a uh, heel-striking uh, marathon majors winner um, running, you know, 204. So so the foot strike is not the be-all and end-all of everything, but uh, it's it's one of the results of going in those minimal shoes is that you, you really do tend to be a little more mid-foot striking. And uh, most of us, I think, would agree that that's a more efficient way to run when you're running fast is to be uh, more midfoot or forefoot. I'm sure. So last thing, just before, last, last uh, two small things. One, 
What uh, what kind of shoes do you personally like? It sounds like you've had a lot of running shoes and been around a lot of running shoes over the last over your lifetime. So what do you what do you choose when you uh, when you can? I like all kinds of running shoes. Um, I do like some of those more minimal shoes these days. Um, I have a closet full of <laughs> track spikes and cross country spikes and uh, a couple of retro shoes that I even um, jog around in a little bit. Um, I'm not a barefoot zero drop to the ground person too often. Personally, I like about a four millimeter drop, I guess, four to eight. Um, if that's the one thing I'm focusing on in the shoe, uh, I like light, flexible shoes. They're definitely a little more fun. And last final thing, what uh, what final advice do you have for the, somebody who's either looking to... For, for their first pair of shoes or looking to maybe change the type of shoe they're looking they're looking for uh go to a running shop go to a running specialty shop uh talk to them let them know what you're thinking and uh and what your running experience is like and let them help you uh work through it um see what they have on the wall the the quest for a minimalist type shoe often leads you outside of a running store because, frankly, a lot of us just don't stock a lot of those kinds of shoes, and that customer is often doing research and looking for a specific kind of thing. But it's at least worth going to the running store to learn about your mechanics and learn about what you might need and learn about what you might need to be careful with as you make that transition. That sounds great. Hey, Garth, thanks very much for your time, and uh, we'll let you get on with your day. But, uh, again, thanks for being here, and we appreciate your advice. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. If you have a question about what you heard or feedback you'd like to give, please don't hesitate. You can leave a written comment on the episode, either on our website or through our iTunes page, or you can leave us a voice message. The number for that is 617-356-7969. We'll answer as many of the questions as we can in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening.